Sadly Topical Podcast covering the globalized radical right. I'm Craig Johnson bringing to you this week some news from the United States, the Philippines, Brazil, and a see you in hell from the United States, the state of Alabama. First, I got to talk about the failed uh, extreme right-wing rally that happened in Washington, D.C. last weekend. This is the Justice for J6 rally. Uh, I didn't mention it last week uh, in the podcast because, frankly, people who pay close attention to the right-wing uh, in the United States knew that it was going to be a flop, and guess what? It was. Uh, so, yeah, as predicted, uh, the rally was pretty much a failure. Uh, ostensibly, the purpose of the rally was to advocate for quote, justice uh, for those who participated in Trump's attempted coup earlier this year in January 6th. Uh, Obviously, this is not exactly what the rally was about. You know, it was supposed to try to continue the momentum that the coup brought to the extreme right uh, and also to continue the momentum of just the extreme right in the Trump coalition. Uh, That seems to have not succeeded, at least in this particular case. Uh, However, I don't think we need to get our hopes too high up, especially because we have clear evidence just from what people are saying and commentary that was made online and in person about this rally by people on the extreme right, uh, that they sort of knew that this one wasn't going to work. Trump himself called it a trap. Uh, He said, you know, either a bunch of people show up and they say that it's dangerous and condemn them, or nobody shows up and they call it a flop and they condemn them. Uh, And that's actually an extremely accurate depiction of what happened, right? Um, But again, don't get your hopes too high. Uh, Everybody on the extreme right was really downplaying this one, so I don't really think that it's a sign of anything in particular. Uh, A sign of something in particular, however, are the massive leaks of right-wing online material. Uh, And this is coming from Yahoo News and a bunch of other sources. Uh, What happened was that there was a leak and a hack of a company called Epic, E-P-I-K, a right-wing internet host um, that uh, a bunch of right-wing media and news sites and just like websites have moved to uh, in the wake of their deplatforming by other hosting companies. Uh, They were hacked by people who claimed to be connected to the group called Anonymous, Um, and uh, they have gotten out massive amounts of info, like crazy shit. Uh, They got usernames, they got financial data, they got uh, passwords, they have locations, they have IP addresses, they have everything uh, from websites uh, like 8chan, Gab, Parler, etc., etc. Epic also hosted the Daily Stormer for a while, so I assume they have some of that shit too. I mean, it's it's really crazy. Uh, These websites are a real, like, who's who of the United States extreme right, at least, uh, online. And so this is, this is extremely fascinating. Uh, it remains to be seen exactly how this information is going to be used. Uh, there are a lot of people online who are great sources for like um, internet sleuthing and detective work uh, around this kind of data, you know, doxing and leaks like this. Uh, so if you're looking for that sort of stuff, look for that in particular. Um, it's it's going to be really cool, really interesting. Uh, also, if you'll believe it, uh, the company's founder, the founder of this company that pitched itself as a place for right-wing media uh, to host itself, his name is Robert Monster. His name is actually Monster. This, this is completely ridiculous. Anyway, so the sleuthing has only just begun here. Um, there's going to be a lot of good research, uh, and it might drive some of these online communities into further obscurity. Uh, which would be a good thing. 
Uh, all evidence points to the fact that the more and more these kinds of organizations and ideologies are deplatformed, the harder it is for people to find them, uh, the less well they can organize. You know, it's better for this shit to be on teensy tiny discussion forums uh, than it is for it to be on Reddit, for example, or Twitter. However, uh, we can't lean too hard on this kind of technocratic deplatforming uh, methodology, right? Uh, not only is it always possible for these people to find other hosts or for them to host things themselves or whatever, uh, it's also important not to just like assume that a technical solution to this problem is going to fix it, right? This is not a technical problem. It's a political problem. Uh, the fundamental problem isn't that these people are capable of communicating uh, via the internet. The problem is that there are millions of people who are susceptible to the political message of fascism and the extreme right in general. Uh, and that is not a problem that can be solved uh, by uh, a hacking campaign. It's a problem that has to be solved politically uh, by political activity. In further news in Brazil, and I guess also the United States, um, Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, uh, is in the United States, well, technically he's at the United Nations, uh, to speak to the United Nations General Assembly. Um, after it was stopped last year, uh, the sort of annual address uh, that many world leaders give to the United Nations General Assembly has resumed this year, and Bolsonaro is in the United States in order to give this address. Um, Bolsonaro has given this speech already, and uh, like many world leaders, he uses it as an opportunity to justify his government to the international community. Uh, if you're curious about listening to the speech you and, and you understand Portuguese, uh, you should really give it a listen. It's an extremely good example of how a far-right politician can couch his behavior in what he thinks and intends uh, to be a really palatable way for the international community. Uh, in reality, of course, uh, his speech presents a sort of funhouse mirror version of Brazil as it actually is. Uh, his speech talked about uh, three main things. Uh, one was Brazil's triumph over COVID, uh, whereas in reality, Brazil's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has been horrific, uh, to say the least. And Bolsonaro himself is essentially the only major world leader left who is still vaccine hesitant. Um, Bolsonaro also presented Brazil as a country free of corruption, uh, which is a not-so-veiled reference uh, to Lula, uh, Lula de Silva, his likely presidential opponent, in the presidential elections uh, next year. Uh, Lula de Silva was um, found guilty of several corruption charges in the wake of the extremely major Brazilian corruption case known as Car Wash, which is just too fucking big of a thing to get into right now. But uh, the, suffice it to say that many, many Brazilian politicians uh, were involved in a major corruption case. Uh, the former president uh, was one of them. And uh, the right wing in Brazil used his involvement in this case in an attempt to uh, eliminate him as a possible presidential opponent to Bolsonaro. Uh, it appears as if that, uh, that attempt is failing. Uh, however, uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, so Bolsonaro says uh, there have been no corruption cases in Brazil uh, in the last couple of years, uh, which, you know, if you're paying attention, what, what he's saying isn't that there isn't any corruption, just that there haven't been any cases, uh, which is uh, quite different. Uh, what he's saying is that I am not prosecuting my people for corruption. 
Uh, huh? that's, uh, that's not exactly the same thing, Bolsonaro. And the last thing that Bolsonaro is really clear on is that Brazil is free of socialism. Uh, again, this is a reference to his likely presidential opponent, Lula de Silva, uh, who is from the Workers' Party, is the translation of the name of the party, uh, and is a socialist. Um, Bolsonaro, as I've said many times on this podcast and will continue to say, he is laying the ideological and structural groundwork for a coup attempt, or at least for some kind of extra-legal activity in an attempt to prevent uh, Lula from being his presidential opponent or to prevent Lula from winning uh, if uh, he is uh, actually going to face him in the election. Um, Bolsonaro is trying to say that Brazil is free of socialism because he desperately wants it to be. Uh, so this is, you know, this is his, like, his imagined version of how Brazil is. And, of course, uh, the icing on the cake is that the day after Bolsonaro gave his speech, uh, the Brazilian health minister, uh, his appointee, and somebody who accompanied him to the United Nations, tested positive for COVID-19. And so now the entire Brazilian delegation is in isolation. Uh, 14 days. Whoops. Now we have some news from the Philippines, uh, which is, uh, this is coming from AFP. Uh, the news is that the president of the Philippines, uh, Duterte, um, has been requested uh, by the International Criminal Court to cooperate on an investigation that the ICC, that's the International Criminal Court, uh, has brought against the government of the Philippines for Duterte's uh, system of mass murder, execution, persecution, uh, which he frames as a war on drugs. Uh, Duterte essentially said, screw you. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration. Duterte is known for his, um, like, calls it like I sees it type uh, rhetoric. He curses a lot. Um, so that that's not a particularly bad translation of his response. Um, he says that the ICC has no jurisdiction in the Philippines, uh, that the Philippines has left uh, the treaty that enables the ICC to indict governments and uh, indict participants in governments and to conduct investigations. Um, this is not a particular surprise. Uh, many countries that commit atrocities of this kind uh, refuse investigation. For example, the United States is not party to this treaty either. Uh, that should come as no surprise to any of you who know about the many crimes committed by the United States government, both in its borders and outside of them. Um, to return to the point at hand, uh, the war on drugs in the Philippines is a, it's a screen. Uh, the, the, this is the way that Duterte talks about a systematized uh, mass murder scheme, um, which uh, outside observers estimate has killed numbers in the range of the tens of thousands. Uh, the government of the Philippines itself acknowledges uh, that over 6,000 people have been killed. Uh, in reality, this is political and socialized targeting of people in the Philippines, uh, people who might uh, support uh, opposition candidates, uh, people who live in parts of cities that um, the government wants to clear out for development, uh, that sort of thing. Um, this program began uh, for, under Duterte uh, when he was the mayor of Davos City, uh, which is the third largest city in the Philippines. That's where he got his, uh, his real political start. Uh, and the terrifying thing is that Duterte himself actually participated in some of these murders. Uh, he claims that while mayor, he himself went out with the police uh, on raids and shot people. Uh, if you are looking for a like real apotheosis of the kind of strongman politics 
uh, represented by somebody like Erdogan or Trump. Uh, Duterte is the real deal. Uh, it's extremely terrifying. And finally, going to close out this episode, uh, as I do most episodes, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Uh, this week, we are returning to the United States uh, to talk about George Wallace, a famous segregationist Democratic politician. Uh, George Wallace was born in 1919 in southeastern Alabama uh, to a family of farmers. Uh, he attended law school, joined the Air Force in World War II, uh, was an engineer. Uh, and served in the Pacific. Uh, he was honorably discharged uh, for a, um, an issue of nerves uh, for, for extreme anxiety. Uh, after a relatively short career as a sort of like political consultant lawyer type, uh, he entered the Alabama State House and uh, then successfully won uh, the governorship after an uncontested segregated vote in 1962. Uh, now, for those of you unfamiliar with this era of United States politics, uh, Wallace is a segregationist white Democratic politician in a state that has a large minority of black potential voters. Uh, however, this is the previous to the successes of the civil rights era in terms of uh, reinstating voting rights that had been taken away from black Americans uh, after Reconstruction. And so Wallace, uh, as a Democrat, is able to win uh, on his segregationist platform because the black people who would be and were the victims of this platform were not allowed to vote. Um, so Wallace's governor is fiercely pro-segregation and intimately connected to the KKK, like he has active KKK members in his uh, political offices. Uh, he wasn't allowed to run for a second term, uh, so he had his wife run in his stead and was effectively the governor. I mean, it, it's disgusting. Uh, Wallace had run for president a couple times before, um, but his third presidential run in 1968, uh, after he had been out of the governor's office for a while, uh, is the really important one. First, he contested the 1968 Democratic presidential nomination, uh, which is one of the most contested and fascinating political fights in United States history. Um, and then, uh, after being unsuccessful, after the, the Democrats nominated Hubert Humphrey, uh, he ran as a third-party candidate. And uh, in that way, paved the way for Nixon's victory uh, in the 1968 presidential election by winning electoral votes in the Deep South and also in Arkansas. Um, he is thus the last third-party candidate to win a state's electoral votes. Um, and his victory in the South really enabled... Uh, what would become the Southern strategy, a racist strategy uh, undertaken now by Republicans uh, that attempts to uh, use segregated vote systems to secure white majoritarian votes in the South uh, for extremely conservative white politicians. Uh, he ran for president again in 1972, contesting the Democratic nomination again, uh, he had somewhat moderated on racial issues and was now just a sort of like structurally pro-segregation candidate uh, rather than a staunch supporter of legal apartheid as he was uh, in the 60s. Uh, however, uh, in 1972, he was shot by Arthur Bremer, uh, who was unfortunately not motivated by politics. He just wanted to get famous for shooting a politician. Uh, he went to hospital and was sort of in and out of national politics after that. He contested the Democratic nomination again in 1976. Um, finally, he served a last term in governor in the 1980s as a born-again Christian. 
and appointed many uh, black Americans to positions in his government, but it was extremely too little and very much too late, uh, given his previous uh, political crimes in shoring up racial apartheid in the United States and also in enabling Republican control um, eventually uh, at the national level. Uh, he died of septic shock in the hospital, partly due to complications from having been shot uh, in the past. Uh, he died actually last week in history, uh, the 13th of September, 1998. So George Wallace, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you like the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please uh, share it with friends, leave reviews on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really liked it, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. Uh, I have Patreon exclusive content up right now. Uh, it's personal stories about my experiences studying fascism as a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley. All right, uh, I will talk to you next week.